0: is a professional managerial class more of a cultural category than an economic category?
1: Okay. So, um, in the classical Marxist sense, all classes are defined by their relationship to the means of production. So Mm -hmm. the working class has no ownership of the means of production has only their labor to sell. Right. So Mm -hmm. we're going to rehearse this. Um, I have to give a shout out to Daniel Bernfin at the University of Chicago, who refined this idea for me as he was working on my book. And um, he said that the professional managerial class is actually a, a, and their salaries, their relationship to production is ideological reproduction of capitalism. And the capitalist has been able to use part of its, profits, part of the surplus value produced by the working class, to pay for a minority of people to reproduce the conditions of capitalism.
0: The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, anything. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Catherine Liu is the author of Virtue Hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class. She is a professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Irvine, and she writes for publications such as Jacobin and the LA review of books. Catherine, uh, thanks for coming on my podcast.
1: Um, thanks Doug. And uh, thanks for sending me those questions. I've been um, preparing myself to answer some of them. So yeah. who come on, who have me on. Um, don't, uh, actually send me questions before I come on. So I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. I, um, usually do send questions ahead of time. And then what I find is during the conversation, I only ask a few of them, but I'll start with the first question I have written down here, which is that your book is about the professional managerial class. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I find as a Marxist, I have a difficult time figuring out just what the PMC is, is, is a class. It doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of its relationship to production. To me, as it seems ambiguous, is a professional managerial class more of a cultural category than an economic category?
1: OK, so um, in the classical Marxist sense, all classes are defined by their relationship to the means of production. So mm-hmm. the working class has no ownership of the means of production, has only their labor to sell. Right. So we, mm-hmm. we're going to rehearse this. Um I have to give a shout out to Daniel Bernfin at the University of Chicago, who refined this idea for me as he was working on my book. And um, he said that the professional managerial class is actually a, a, and their salaries, their relationship to production is ideological reproduction of capitalism. And the capitalist has been able to use part of its, Profits, part of the surplus value produced by the working class to pay for a minority of people to reproduce the conditions of capitalism. If you want to do this in a more basic way, you could say that the cost of labor, um, of actual manufacturing labor, keeps going down. It's squeezed so much because global capitalism has found that in the are in trouble now because of this, like stretching the logistics, stre- stretching um the web of production is cheaper than actually keeping manufacturing jobs in the United States, right? Well, this is to, you know, um, increase the profits for capitalists, but the capitalists have realized that there is a class and a, classically from every Marxist analysis. And although Marx himself was less focused on this class, but Perry Anderson, um, Lucien Goldman, who's a French um, Marxist of the 17th century, they all identified an intermediary class of clerics, right, of literate people in under feudalism who execute the um, will of the monarch, right? So it's not – the Cardinal Richelieu is a really good example of um, someone who's um, a churchman and also a really good accountant. And he helped Louis XIV finance all of his wars, finances, court, etc. This class – of people has a history. It has a history in the different modes of production. Under feudalism, they were religious. And now under finance capitalism, they take up all the space of um, progressive and liberal politics. And this is what I wanted to identify in 1977. But part of that is that they are rewarded by capitalists, by capitalism, In a copious manner, they remain a non-productive class. What they do is reproduce ideology to maintain the legitimacy of capitalism itself. So um, if you think of Marx's working day, where the worker has to, the the time that the worker actually spends reproducing her own conditions of existence is... um, reduced as you have greater and greater amounts of efficiency you have the peel off of surplus value increasing for the um for the um capitalist and today what's happened is the actual labor let's talk about the iphone the actual labor of putting together the iphone the labor power that produces profits for apple oh. is the 1.5 million people working in foxconn right now in um in mm-hmm. Southern China. It is the, you know, maybe 30, $40,000 miners who are mining the rare earth minerals for this production, but who is paid in this class? Who's not Tim Cook, who doesn't own Apple, right? Who's not a capitalist, um, designers, engineers, coders, and, um, a class of people who, un- in Marx, in your industrial capitalism, we understood as foremen, right? Or, um, you know, like they were thinking about how to create thing, create more um productive line, more efficient lines of production. This class of foremen has um executed the boss's will. And now you can say that they're a culturalist class now, but they are still executing the capitalist will in order to put down the working class, which are the majority of Americans, but we never hear about them on the msm because the msn is completely populated by college educated white collar professional managerial class types maybe second third fourth generation so i get really mad when marxists say oh my god this class doesn't exist you're not really marxist well i don't care about that so much because i think i'm a pragmatist in um, marx and marxist at the same time but i feel like are you actually saying that that class formations has not changed since industrial capitalism one. And are you actually being a positivist, like saying I have to find like um, uh, empirical qualities that will unite this class in relationship to the means of production before we accept that it is a class that is in a struggle for supremacy on the behalf of capitalism. And Mm. so I have a huge spiel about this. I, mean, I know that you're not the one who's confronted me in that way, but there are these weird positivists now. They're like, "Well, this class is so diverse, you can't um you, you can't define it." And it's like, the working class isn't diverse um zebras stripes are all different do we not mm-hmm. are we not able to um classify them as a species the working class is also diverse but its means its relation to the means of production is the same so that's the dialectic man that's theory that's what marx gave us from hegel and if you need to be an english positivist then you go and inspect elevators <laughs> and whatever other metaphor well, <clears throat> positivists use. <laughs> I, I guess
0: as you were describing this um there are a couple of different categories that came up, and I I, uh, there is, I, do have a critique, I think, or I'm sort of an intuitive reaction to the PMC discourse or the explanation that points to the PMC, not because I, I don't have – like, I'm conflicted about it. Like, I absolutely recognize a PMC type when I run into them. Um, for me, like, Elizabeth Warren was a perfect example of, like, the kind of PMC personality yeah. And I have a like it's like nails on a chalkboard. Um, so I, I know I, I I kind of have this. Uh, I think we're kin in this way. Like we we agree about about the about some of these people. But then when I try to step back and be dispassionate and analyze it, I get a little confused. And the reason why is not just so much that I think things have stayed exactly the same since the nineteenth century, but I wonder about. Uh I guess the thing I, I I struggle with not just in this context but in, in other contexts is the relationship between the economic relations and the ideological relations and where you and how uh the economic relations generate ideological formations and where and 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 so and what I always want to do is like say, okay when we're looking at ideological formations, we should be as clear as possible about the economic relations that are generating them and try to trace some sort of pattern or system or causation from one to the other. And that's where I I fall down uh, quite often. But um, it seemed to me like...
1: Can I jump in in here mm -hmm. for another point of clarification? So um, by the 1920s, the U.S. had, you know, um, increased its rates of efficiency in manufacturing, right? We all know that... What had to happen at that point was a kind of ideological machine of salesmanship goes into play because people, workers are not consuming enough, right? People are not consuming enough. So you have this, the rise of salesmen. And it's more, C. Wright Mills really writes about this very well. Siegfried Krakauer writes about this very well. The salesmanship that is necessary to convince people to buy on credit, to become consumers, to enjoy the sort of euphoric, You for benefits of capitalism is directly related to overproduction, right? So if you want to um, link things up, you know, look at the history of capitalism. Mm The 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 amazing thing about this class is that it is both a class of experts and salesmen, and today they are selling us a kind of ideological um, fetishization of expertise. And it begins in you know the 20th century. I've mean, been in the 20s. I've been working on um, multi level mar- marketing, right? And um, this guy Robert Fitzpatrick wrote a book called Ponzinomics It's not really been um, read very much on the left, and I'm not quite sure why. But this one of the first w- um, mo- most successful attempts to sell on credit was um, the selling of Um, cemetery places in Forest Lawn Memorial Cemetery in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which is like incredible to me that, and that um, actually place creates the template for multi-level marketing. Mm -hmm. And um, I I'm beginning more and more to think that this class actually owes a lot to that, that um, MLM moment. Because one of the things that I think is really MLM
0: important- also means Marxist Leninist Maoist, but go, go on. <laughs> I,
1: just, I know in my context this is
0: multi-level marketing. Market? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, do
1: anybody-
0: I'm sorry, I I just people call, call themselves
1: that now these days. I mean, who yeah, are online?
0: Anyone? I don't know. They have anime avatars and they call themselves MLMs, and I think they're about 16 years <laughs> old usually. But um, uh <laughs> the, <laughs> but okay, just to jump in and s- to, um. I wanna so this is something I, I think we should explore a little. The connection between financialization, uh, and uh, I guess that would also mean the uh connection between um uh the PMC and and the creation of massive amounts of debt, a debt debt based economy, um and consumerism and the PMC uh is Important, I think it, and I, and here I'm just going to cut to the chase because I, I mentioned James Burnham at the end I don't of the I don't
1: know him. Don't know uh, that.
0: But. Uh, okay, but I, I'll just sort of fill you in a little bit about James Burnham. I don't know that, that well, but he wrote a book called The Managerial Revolution, 1941. He was a, a an ex Trotskyist who became uh, conservative, um and a, around World War Two and after, uh, uh, throughout the left, there was a sense that capitalism had overcome its contradictions that through state management uh the capitals capitalist form could be maintained um Marcuse is someone who a lot of the frankfurt school guys talked about about capitalism in this way that they were concerned that the original aim for freedom and liberty that the proletariat were supposed to take up mm-hmm. ha- could be c- permanently sidelined by uh, you know, consumer credit and consumption primarily. Uh, so by offering this, you know, certain level of wealth to the working class and and, and managing distribution through the state, mm-hmm. um, they, they could hold on to the exploitation and, and unfreedom of capitalism indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the fear. But along with that fear, there was a sense that, as I said at the start, capitalism's internal contradictions have been overcome. Uh, and they thought that because you know the great Depression hadn't led to revolution, mm-hmm. and it had been overcome through state spending apparently mm-hmm. but in fact, by nineteen seventy five let's say in the mm-hmm. in around there the the there was a breakdown in the fordist model mm-hmm. that old whole that whole way approach was no longer tenable, and neoliberalism arose as a, a new form and what that meant was that the contradictions within capitalism, the tendency rate of profit to decline, for instance, and yes, uneven yes. development, all of that, were was still present. And so, yes. uh, then the fear of the managerial class as the primary actors seems to me to be maybe a little bit misplaced. Like, um, but, but it is remarkable that neoliberalism, as it's breaking down, um is not that what's not breaking down is apparently the power of the capitalist class, whether it's Republican or Democrat, um, mm-hmm. that it's not leading to a proletarian politics. Um, right. But, right. right. So, so take, anyway, that's, that's in the background of all this. And okay. so, so the question is when you turn to, when you talk about the financialization um, that is leading to the empowering um, the, the this class of managers it's worth noting that that kind of neoliberal financialization uh, happened after uh, many people on the left were concerned about this class or a version of it the managerial class in the after mm-hmm. world war ii mm-hmm. and that in mm-hmm. both modes the Fordist and the neoliberal there's been this concern about the managerial class and that's all i'll just throw that out there is a long winded? concern
1: like um worry about it's
0: Concerned as if it's as if it is a primary impediment to uh-huh. uh, a, a socialist politics, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know. And and uh-huh. another way to put it is like the the interesting thing is in the Fordist period, the 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 kinds of things we talk about as socialist, like redistribute, re, redistributive politics, right. were mm-hmm. the the politics of the capitalist class. Right. And and so now we we are looking to the PMC the managers as an impediment to that old Fortis politics, which we're calling socialism today. So I'll just put, here, all my cards are on the table. That's all of it. That's everything.
1: that's a very, um, it's a very complex historical argument. And I'm going to counter. I am mean, not <laughs> countering. I'm just mm-hmm. going to um, amplify it or sort of give it a few more dimensions. So mm-hmm. you have after World War II, the rise of, um Um, professional organizations and professional um, international relations people, experts. You eventually have the rise of brand, corporation, Brookings, who are looking at preventing nuclear war through game theory, through modeling, you have the rise of, you know, massive computers and everything else. And there is this trust in the class of expertise, of experts, because they executed World War II, like in the United States, and this kind of state-sponsored redistribution, which had been inaugurated by also white-collar class elites in mm-hmm. the ni- in the 1930s out of fear of working-class um, unrest, like raw fear of mm-hmm. um, human suffering causing a revolution, there was a much more a much greater degree of public trust in the government's ability to redistribute and in like this foreign national what we call now the national security state in protecting the interests of the United States there, the cold war was launched it was immediately you know um creating this agonistic relationship between you know erstwhile allies but we have in the United, what you have already being Um, executed within US politics and imperialism is a policy of industrializing Japan Mm. and eventually East Asia, so that it is able to um, have more sophisticated manufacturing lines that would be able to compete eventually with American auto workers, that comes to bear in 1970s, but the industrialization of Japan is done with the idea of keeping Japan from becoming fascist again or militaristic et cetera but J- the Japanese pioneered what we have today, which is low wage manufacturing, mm-hmm. creating East Asia as a site of low wage manufacturing and I would say like in nineteen seventy two when the rate of profit um, you know uh, and the forest model is well failing um I think. I wouldn't say it's a conspiracy theory, but you know, the, the owners of the means of production realized that the Japanese model, the ECH manufacturing model didn't have to be competitive. They could just double down on Marshall on um, plan investment in these countries and then move us manufacturing completely across the Pacific. So mm-hmm. everything is about cutting wages, cutting the cost of labor and, um, and that allowed for a revival of um, prof- profits eventually for the capitalist class, so even though everyone else suffered stagflation. The thing about this is this was executed by the same, you know, pointy headed glasses wearing Cold War types who had been supposedly presiding over redistribution and also the building of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Cold War bulwarks against the USSR. Right. So mm-hmm. um that is a moment of, I think, betrayal, though, of this ex- expert class um, of the working class, and you have to say that with the American, um, the way that um, American economics grew was social mobility. What between forty-seven and seventy-two was really, really powerful, and a lot of these people who were occupying, you know, these roles, they were, um, they were, they were like one generation away from, let's say. Um, Working class life. I mean, working Mm -hmm. class life is much more present. At this point, though, they they think they're doing this. They're, you know, um, creating higher rates of profit, moving um, chains of production away from the U.S., the continental U.S. They think they're doing this for stability, but actually... Um, what happens is, as we know, the neoliberal um, economic policies have created the greatest amount of in- inequality in the United States. But from a more global point of view, you could say that it allowed for the industrialization of the East Asian countries. So mm-hmm. that is, you know, those are very ironic and crazy things. but. America allowed this to happen as long as it could preside over um, globalized capitalism. the problem with China now is that it's actually taken this model run with it and it's created another pole of political economic power mm, so I'm yeah. not, I'm not um, disagreeing with anything that you say then but as the um, as the execution and the financialization of um um, neoliberal capitalism has to be um, um, disseminated and legitimized, it's now accident that the PMC has grown in power since the early 70s. And this is what John and Barbara Ehrenreich called, like, okay, they're, they're like pointy-headed dweebs, you know, doing horrible things in offices. But what John and Barbara Ehrenreich pointed out in 77 was they were occupying and monopolizing all the spaces of erstwhile progressive liberal politics in the u s which might be the democratic party, right, or we could think of even you know um left wing organizations which were more to the left, michael harrington's organization that becomes d s a for instance, and mm-hmm. I don't think they're wrong like it's no there are no like organic working class intellectuals who are dominating the sphere it, it and today it's even worse, you know the n g o industries the Democratic Party, and unfortunately, you know, large parts of DSA are dominated by professional managerial class liberalism that I think works against, works to obfuscate class contradiction.
0: Well, I mean, the division of labor under capitalism uh, is such that if you are working class, you're not called upon to to have theories or be particularly, uh, um, intellectual or or even creative in your professional life right because i mean by definition you're you're the worker you're the hands you're the body you 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 implement the physical labor Mm -hmm. um even if that physical labor is just mashing buttons um but uh and what happens is if you are a smart working class person Mm-hmm. um or you you know i mean and that that doesn't mean that people who are mashing buttons or doing physical labor aren't smart but if you are so driven to develop that side of your your life professionally you leave the working class yeah. um and and so uh i mean so that's not that's not really a, a a surprise that there would be this division of labor under capitalism just if you accept marx's terms the question is um uh to to what degree can the PMC uh, or these managers really control uh, the, the 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 politics that emerge like I'm always like uh, the only thing I'm allergic to when it comes to the PMC thesis is that they get blamed for the problems that emerged rather than blamed for their failure to solve them you, you see what I mean like like it that that it's like uh, like this the conflict between um russia and uh the west and through the ukraine that's not the that's not being caused by the pmc it just isn't being managed well by the pmc they're utterly failing to Mm. to do anything about it so um but let's talk about the pmc too because the other thing that happens is like i start to worry am i pmc now I mean, I used to be, I worked as a drone, office drone for 20 years, but now I work on YouTube and publish books. Am I part of the PMC all of a sudden? Um, And then does that mean, I guess the real question is, does that PMC have an interest as a class that's apart from just helping the capitalism and the the political parties maintain power?
1: You mean, uh, so, I mean anything more than ideological reproduction of right. capitalist status quo,
0: right? Right, right.
1: So one of the things like your YouTube bro, your streamer, you went to college, Your one of the definitions that I gave early on when people were asking about this is, does your work hurt your body? Does your only, work I'm tra- I'm
0: traumatized by it. That doesn't yeah. count. <laughs>
1: right, right. So psychic trauma. That's the other. That's the next. Thing <laughs> we I'm have ready. to talk about. So, it. Yeah, we yeah, have to talk PMC about that next. Trauma, but yeah. um, if your work does not actually hurt your body, you're probably you're a white collar worker, and you could be lower level PMC. At this point, I think, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, despite left media. Um, Content producers are generally in the professional managerial class. And -hmm. when you have a content producer who isn't, he probably uses like transgressive, um, vulgar tropes like Trump himself to Mm -hmm. um, flout PMC propriety. But Mm -hmm. But content production and sort of the good part, the good parts of liberalism that the PMC should be protecting, which is what I think you were saying about the Ukraine, is general skepticism. And a trust in reason, right? The contemporary class um, has completely capitulated on both those counts. All of the MSN um, uh, uh, coverage of Ukraine and Russia are is so pitched to create outrage. And to create a drama of um, innocence and guilty parties, and then to whip up our, you know, um, desire for revenge—it's—it's it's strangely melodramatic and revanchist. Like if you actually had a functioning journalistic cadre of people who believed in um, objectivity, which you know allegedly high liberals do believe in, then every moment of coverage of this conflict would look at the history of what happened to Ukraine, what happened to Russia, what the dissolution of the Soviet Union meant, how many people are of Russian descent in the Ukraine, what NATO is, but we get nothing of that. We get like one bombed out building, two bombed out buildings were so inured in this um, culture of melodrama. And actually like the values of high liberalism that the professional managerial class should be preserving but are not because it's not actually an objective neutral class is um are completely give are completely thrown out the window like we've been ripe for conflict with, with Russia and ripened by MSNBC like you know Russia gate Russia gate Russia gate Russia's doing this Russian hackers Russian we attribute like this superpower horror to Russia. And um, that is how we, you know, construe this whole conflict. You know, Putin is, I don't know, mentally ill, he's out of his mind right now, but it's not about him personally. It's actually this geopolitical conflict has deep, deep roots in what happened in the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. to The bombing of Sarajevo by NATO. And I just feel like this... So if we actually... Um, one of the arguments I make in this book is, you know, if this class weren't just about managing, um, the contradiction of capitalism, it would actually have to preserve the values of professionalism, which were values that were pioneered in the early days of American Fordism by, um, a cleric or an intellectual class that wanted to, um, fight against the profit motive in every aspect of life, right? Within the university, within the medical professions, um the depredations of capitalism and the drive for profit and the sort of raw naked greed of robber barons like Leland Stafford Jr., Harriman's the the people the fricks, the people who are now like running um who have names on private foundations, you know, basic like criminals, like Mellon, Ford, Rockefeller, right? Mm -hmm. All of these, all of those um, powers that be were seen as enemies of the professions of an emergent professional white collar class, Mm -hmm. which may not have like, liked working class immigrants or working class people, but at least, but felt like they were being exploited and suffering at the hands of the Carnegie's, the Mellon's, the Frick's, the Harriman's, the whatever, the, the, um, the capitalists of the day. And now you have a class, which is begging for money from Gates, from, you know, from Ford, from Rockefeller. And this is also like how, um, this sort of nonprofit world, which was supposed to be a bulwark against capitalism has become fully absorbed within the ideological machine of capitalist reproduction. And, But the one thing that gives me hope is that they have to work so hard to keep re-legitimizing themselves because they know this form of distribution of profits is so illegitimate right now, so Mm. crisis-prone. And um, and one of the reasons why I think I'm particularly, well, uh, um, you know, engaged in this is that I see because I don't teach in an elite Northeastern university where, you know, in the bubble, I see how my undergraduates um, of many, many um, different kinds of backgrounds, middle to working class um, backgrounds in California, how they actually have been so damaged by the crisis in 2008, by the opioid crisis. I can't tell you how many of my students Tell me that they have parents who overdosed or who are addicted to fentanyl opioids. It's horrific right mm-hmm. now. But yeah. the more horrific it is, the more the harder the um PMC and the content producers of you know um, liberalism and neoliberalism have to work to legitimize what is happening right now. Well,
0: you said something early on there and just there just now, which I think really needs to be underlined in the way in which the dominant ideology that wants to reproduce capitalism for two things. One, it can't live up to its own ideals. It can't live up to the ideals of a free society based on reason and open right. discourse and, or uh, and historical right? or yeah. skepticism or uh, a historical understanding. Um, and uh, the second thing is instead it uh focuses on the melodrama of individuals and individual attitudes and creating villains and heroes which gets shifted around from week to week um, uh, as a kind of a spectacular distraction. And by the way, I've been rereading the society of spectacle formative book for me back in the nineties. Yeah. Me too.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, uh, and uh, so, the, and you pointed out rightly that, that this moment in the Ukraine is a perfect example. What, regardless of whose side you're on, cause there's some part of the left that like wants to make a hero of Putin. There is, and um, there are a lot of people who are liberals and leftists who are uh, um, uh, making a hero of, of Zelensky, and, and I, I have to admit the guy is charming, but um, th- the, the, the main thing here is that we're being asked to forget and to ignore some major questions that have been dominating intellectual discourse for, what, 30, 40 years? I mean, so, okay, well, how long has it been? I'm gonna say thirty years uh since eighty nine mm-hmm. we were supposed to be in this moment at the end of history where liberal yeah. democracy was going to be able to shape the world into basically peace and harmony that was Francis Fukuyama's thesis and you know he had some uh, uh, caveats to it and it's interesting how those caveats are precisely the kinds of things that are c- come along to explain the international breakdowns that happen like you'll hear people say, oh it he Fukuyama said, well, there might be a problem with liberal democracy when people are seeking status and power yeah. for psychological reasons. And that's exactly the kind of explanation you get around Putin right now in certain sectors. It's like, oh, he, it's about the Russian state having some sort of valor and cultural status, and that's what he's seeking to vindicate that, rather than any systemic analysis of the material conditions that might lead up to this kind of thing. But uh, I guess my question is when you're with your students um, who are in the midst of this crisis, how do you redirect them away from uh, taking up whatever problems they might be having as their calling cards for power and prestige that they might be able to use later on and instead direct them to, reason and history and argumentation and trying to understand the totality of their situation.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, um, I generally try to um, stick to um, the formal c- historical content, what I'm doing. Like I'm teaching a course called gangster capitalism right now. Mm. The one, it is really grounded in gangster films, but the one thing I try to do in all my classes right now is to, um, force them to describe and to explain what capitalism is. And that's like very, very rewarding because right now, if you ask people, what is capitalism? And these are like smart kids who've gotten like good grades and gotten, you know, AP American history grades that are really good. Um, it's really hard for them to even describe capitalism, although they know we live under the, the system. Right. So we start with, um, you know, and we get to a very basic, like Marxist, definition of you know the means of production being owned by the few for profit to the um, to the few, and the degradation of labor and the reduction of wages to in the name of efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's like such a basic definition, but it's so important, and it's not what they get in schools. You know, they're taught about you know, Native American history, you know, identity and disability and all these fragmentary forms of oppression and um, violence, because that's what, you know, liberal California does now. But the idea that you can actually name the political, economic, ideological framework under which we live is still so new to them. And so there's this kind of freshness and, um, Um, the openness to this kind of discourse that I've seen in students since 2008 that I didn't see in students in the 90s and the 2000s, because everyone was like reading Deleuze and Guattari, the ones who were sophisticated, or the the go-go economy of the new economy, like, okay, that's like old Marxist stuff. You're so, you know, old-fashioned, like, get away from me. This generation, and it's been almost two generations now um, of students who've come up in the world. And I think I teach more normie students than, you know, my colleagues at whatever, Wellesley, Williams, Yale, whatever those places Um, they are just so open to um, identifying and criticizing what this system, what, what capitalism really entails. And one of the other things that we talk about is, you know, these um, narratives in Hollywood, right. Which we could just call the spectacle, all of the narratives of redemption and transformation are based on the individual. Mm -hmm. And when there is a group involved, it's usually very clannish within gangster films. It's like the family, you know? So there isn't ever any understanding of class, even though in the 1930s, it was very clear that capitalism was in crisis. And the early gangster films were about like the, um, they were about debunking the Horatio Alger myth because the Horatio Alger myth, since the nineteenth century, was like rags to riches, rags to riches, work really hard, get really lucky. And actually, the gangster film is rags to riches to rags again, and that implicitly um, is a critique of social Darwinism of um, the ideology of early capitalism. So. A lot of the society of the spectacle stuff that I've been thinking about, you know, informs my teaching. And right now I feel like I have never seen more students more receptive to addressing the totality. I mm-hmm. mean, maybe there there have been, you know, everyone in positions of authority around them are woke. I mean, because we are in California, right? And they're mm-hmm. in a university system. But to actually, I don't try to counter that. Like, you know, guys, don't be so woke. This is very oppressive. Or, you know, this is an HR managed way of dealing with other people. I just give them like another paradigm. And it's just me. But um, I also can't tell you how intensely um, um, engaged the reader response has been to virtue hoarders. I get, I'm still getting an email a day. From the most diverse groups of people, from people all over the world, and most recently from a young woman, African American woman who wrote who wrote a book about a dissertation about gentrification in um, Philadelphia, and I'm hoping at some point to do a project on the Black PMC. Oh yeah, and I think that and building on Cedric Johnson's work too, and so I feel like we are able to talk about class again. I mean, we can have disagreements, but there are like very intense discussions now about class. And I've never seen this in my lifetime within academia, because like I came of age in the 90s, then early 2000s. And people are like, oh, my God, you know, um, rhizomes, man, uh, flights of whatever. And even (laughs) like like, communism, man, cool. And Zizek, you know, with his Lacanian and a libido thing, just enjoy. You know, these were leftists but they just didn't want to talk. The the class just never came up. Even for like Jameson, you know, um, if you look at his work, if you, now we can do like hard searches with digital forms and the discussion of actual class is very, very marginal.
0: Well, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect that the reason Jameson didn't talk about class the way we might want him to is because he came out of the milieu that was dominated by the Frankfurt school and embraced this idea that class contradictions have been overcome yeah. by the managerial that is that... you
1: know, San Diego Marcuse. I, I, you know, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I do feel like um, the Frankfurt school, I, you know, I have a sympathetic, view, probably more sympathetic view of the ranks where school I like them. I think, I think they need to Marcusa be read. It's like kicked out though. It's like the California Marcuse. <laughs> right yeah, so let's, right. but the one and but i do agree that you know their 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 um, discussion of classes is very truncated however their identification of odysseus as the first bourgeois capitalist i think is fantastic because he's just always like transactional. He's ready to make a deal and he doesn't want to be like ripped off by the gods. So he's always trying to like cut the other person off. He's like, beside, I don't really want to sacrifice to you. I want to go home, but I want to keep my stuff. You know, I want to enjoy the sirens, but I don't want to go and kill myself. So everyone else has to work to row me and I can enjoy culture a bait, you know, on the backs of the working class—the guys who are rowing me past the sirens—I mm. do think that crazy anthropological analogy is like that is quite epic. In my yeah, 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 yeah. Um,
0: I, I want to ask you about trauma. Uh, you know, mm. uh, uh, because you're, you're—I saw your lecture on trauma, and it was a paper, beginning of a book that you're working on 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 trauma. Um, I mean, the easy read of this is to to put it into the category of, oh, why are we all snowflakes? You know, what's going on with the, you know, the victims of you know, this victimization, their uh, discourse and all that. But it's what you present is much more interesting than that. And it, and you gave an argument that basically the trauma came to be a way to look away from history and look away from reason and argumentation for like overtly political reasons um and and like around real individuals like uh the, the who's the postmodernist f- uh philosopher that you mentioned in in the uh no. no um it was a deconstructionist It was uh, uh, the the one who was the nazi the 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 oh, nazis Haldeman.
1: Haldeman. yeah
0: paul de man yeah right
1: yeah.
0: um who i haven't read um but the that story is really interesting and I wanted to ask you, how exactly did trauma get deployed in the defense of the De mom? Did did uh um was that a factor?
1: So um I think it was more like his students trying to because he died and then it turned out that he had been in the 40s writing for a Nazi newspaper in Belgium and he'd written all these you know, um, intensely anti-Semitic and um, pro-Teutonic cultural reviews. And so it shocked like the academic um, world. And then his students, Kathy Carruth and his colleague, Trishana Feldman, really, really focused on the trauma narrative around the Holocaust and the reading of that narrative through a deconstructive lens, as if to say like this Demand might have been um, you know deconstructions roots and Domanian thinking and this thing about ambiguity and the abyss of interpretation may have been um, um, associated with someone who is very Nazi sympathetic in his 20s but nevertheless it represents a highest the highest ethical um, epistemological form of close reading and interpretation that can um Overcome ideological falseness, like left right divides, and also give us the most direct and ethical access to the suffering of the Jews during the Holocaust, right? And afterwards. And so that historical trauma becomes um, incredibly privileged in trauma studies, or even actually exclusively privileged, um, to the exclusion of any notion of oppression, domination, or exploitation that might have come up from materialist um, reading of class, right, of Mm. class domination. And um, it was a reputation washing that was actually really, really effective because deconstruction in the 90s was still the most prestigious form of literary criticism at the Mm. time. And so they had to, and so his acolytes and his students really focused on creating and this was a turn to ethics like we're going to be the most ethical listeners of these holocaust testimonies because there was a Yale a lot an endowment and Spielberg and the Fortuna family have kept it going of um videos of survivors and so mm. um Demond dies in 83 and then this thing comes out in 85 86 and then the um Trauma studies comes really strong in the 90s. But the um, idea is that, I mean, this might be getting like too abstruse or something, but Mm -hmm. these constructive types were like, you know, we really listen to the other. We pay attention to the other, you know, other people otherize the other and we understand, you know, we are shaken by the testimony of the other. And it's almost like if you listen to someone's testimony of trauma, you are traumatized too. And that gives you this privileged status. And there's a whole like extraordinarily um, elaborate, you know, philosophical, literary critical um, apparatus by which we're supposed to respect the testimony of trauma. This is the high culture aspect of this. Mm Mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey had gone on her show in front of millions of people in the late eighties. And she had talked about being sexually abused by Mm -hmm. um, a family member. So it was in the air. Like it wasn't so brave of them, of these um, um, academics to come up with trauma studies. They were sort of moving through eclectic forms of um, popular culture and Realizing that this was something that could be a way of talking about damage that was depoliticizing and remarkably in tune with the end of the Cold War. Because the other thing you could talk about in New York Review of Books and all these other places were really in on this and New Yorkers still really in on this. The other thing to talk about was the trauma of communism. Oh my god, that was like a big thing. Like, oh, my family suffered under communism. We escaped communism. So, communism and fascism become the low side of trauma in history, like in their really lame view of history. And mm. this is an end of the history moment. End of history moment. As Fukuyama says, these people were participating in that liberal ideology and saying, you know, nothing get bad can happen now because we're all like upper middle class PMC people listening. To the trauma of people who had suffered in the Holocaust and who were dying by the, mm-hmm. eight, nine, and so we need to preserve their trauma, and we need to pay attention to people who had suffered under communism and their trauma. Meanwhile, you know, um, American inequality is growing. Although I do have to say, the working class was in better shape at this time than it is now. The working class has been destroyed is, you know, fundamentally destroyed. The the rust belt is rustier. Small towns are more desperate. But it was happening. Like, it was already happening, right? Mm -hmm. Jobs are being offshore. There was enormous amounts of um, um, big box stores already, you know, destroying the fabric of small town life. Mining was already in a crisis. You know, oil and gas was um, still doing okay. But the extractive industries were also cutting um, labor. So these things are happening, These things that you and I know are happening under neoliberalism and its economic policies to destroy the life world and the wages of the working class. But that never, ever appears in this discourse because there's no present trauma because we live at the end of history and we can only identify historical traumas, not economic, but sort of they they talk about, you know, um, the Holocaust as if it comes from nothing. You know, there's no discussion of German inflation or you know um, German why, why the rise of German nationalism or how you know disgusting the whole um, part of anti-Semitism embedded in European capitalism is. Right, mm-hmm. no discussion of that. Right, it's always about this this direct relationship to someone's horrific experience. And Eva Elus begins to call it the trauma script. And that's what's really remarkable about this um, refinement of the society of the spectacle is that we are now demanded to participate in our confession of our private experiences according to a trauma script. So since the 1990s and since this, you know since Oprah, um, mm. we have had um, many celebrities. Um, on Oprah's and um, Prince, is it Andrew, whatever, it, Harry's mm. um, new Apple TV um, a station talk about like incredibly traumatic things that have happened to them. But it's incredible how homogenous it is. Mm. Incredible how much it follows a script. And, you know, to use the language of Lukács, it's incredible how reified the script is, right? This, mm. It's like you. I was this this happened to me. Um, I, you know, drank, did cocaine for years because this had happened to me. And then I realized this, like it's, you, you slot yourself into it and you can be Prince Harry. You can be Lady Gaga. You're, you're a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, but you have this, you know, authentic trauma that's happened to you and it becomes something that you can trade. In and, you, content world.
0: and you see the world and what you decide is true or not true is based on its relationship to, uh, the, the trauma discourse. It's not a, a cold, hard, objective reality out there. It's, it's, a mm. it's a, you know, something that has to be deconstructed and something you, you, you feel and something that allows the other to come into and, uh, the, the discourse and have a voice and, and that kind of thing. I recall about 10 years ago, um, listening to a show called Radiolab. You ever heard of Radiolab? Yeah, yeah. Lab? Oh,
1: yeah, 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 on NPR, yep, yep. yep. yep
0: and yep. there was a whole segment about yellow rain, which was, a, 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 there was thought that there, that the, uh, uh, in Laos, um, there was the use of a chemical weapon called yellow rain. Uh, people there suffered from the attacks of yellow rain. Um and-
1: the Vietnam War?
0: yeah it was after yeah yeah but um in i think it was in cambodia but as well like but anyway they in laos anyhow the, the point is that they did some studies u.s scientists after the fact did some studies and found that the yellow rain was bee droppings as the bees were migrating and that the what what was happening was there would be these instances of yellow rain and then the the yellow rain would be blamed as a, as if it had caused a bunch of problems that were just problems of refugees like dysentery and ill health and all sorts of other yeah. difficulties. And, um, and they had someone who had suffered through the yellow rain attacks on the program to talk to this Harvard professor. Mm-hmm. And they were really at, they didn't know how to handle the fact that You know, somebody who was not traumatized, who was situated in in an institution of privilege, Mm -hmm. was discrediting the story of Yellow Rain, which Mm -hmm. turned out to be completely false. And and they're like, we we are we are struggling to figure out a way to hear and respect the suffering of this survivor while maintaining some grip of the truth which was that this never happened. There's no, <laughs> right. And, and so that to me, I'm listening to that. I was like, oh, I can let go of this lived experience nonsense. I don't need to worry about, w- w- you know, where someone is positioned on the ladder of oppression. I can actually just try look for good evidence and reason to be my guide. And that's probably going to be the better thing, but it's still out there
1: where that attitude is less and less um, acceptable in um, cultural in, in the culture industry because we're all supposed to, because the culture industry is reproducing oppression as a sort of black and white game between like perpetrators and survivors. So if you want to be a good person, you're a survivor and if you want to be a really good person, you're supposed to believe all survivors. And right. this is the agon um that is the only thing that they'll talk about whereas you know what we're all dealing with is bosses i mean you're not because you're freelancing Hmm. bosses and what they demand of us every single person who's employed right now i don't care how privileged you are i mean although i don't i care about you a lot less if you're like working in silicon valley and wall street you're um work is the site of alienation exploitation. That's the one thing you can't talk about, but what's really scary about work, the workplace now is we're HR itself is using trauma and informed forms of management to deal with workers. I mean, especially in the post COVID world, but a lot of this has to do with like absolute invasion of privacy. Um, which we've all accepted now, like every day I get an email from my work saying, you know, have you, do you have a fever? Do you have sniffles? Well, and if you think about like what this means with regard to like, even like the individual, like, let's just be libertarians for a moment and not leftists. This is the workplace surveilling your health. And this is just an acceptable thing for everyone to do now. Um, Extracting information from the individual as a form of national security or public health and profit because that's what Facebook, Twitter, and all these other platforms do. That's just seen as like normal now, but the capital, but the um coercive, the soft coercive aspect of this is to accept an interaction where I'm a survivor. I'm either a survivor. I'm producing the spectacle of empathy for mm-hmm. um consumption or for, other people. And I'm telling you, like younger people who are in the workforce, whose jobs are much more threatened than mine or yours, they are terrorized by this. And there's no even room for critique or skepticism, right? They're all supposed to respect lived experience. They're all supposed to like perform trauma-informed pedagogy, which I don't even know what that is. Like I had a difficult childhood, right? Mm -hmm. school for me was like a refuge where I could actually like deal with objective facts and have no one like, and not have to worry about managing like other people's points of view, because I had a task and I had reason. I had things to learn. Like that's, I didn't want anyone to talk to me about my trauma unless they wanted to come in and, you know, take me away from my family. I mean, I was just trying to survive. And one thing about surviving in school, if we want to think of school that way, is like let reason, you know, in the high liberal sense, be the um, be the adjudicator here, not this fake form of empathy and interventionism that really leads to, you know, not uh, higher degrees of the spectacle. Like I, I'm actually just really going to. Um, argue about the society of the spectacle becoming the society of trauma and that of trauma as spectacle. And um, I think it actually just damages intersubjective relationships. It actually damages people's abilities to actually process their own trauma. And it creates a multi-level marketing situation where you think like, if you talk about your trauma in this prepackaged way, you'll get some kind of profit from it. No, Oprah's made her billions. Like she did that. She came out in 1986. She used her trauma in this way. Like if you're actually a traumatized person trying to um survive and wanting to instrumentalize your own relations with your past, like and you're not a movie star, you're not already a millionaire, it probably won't happen for you. Like maybe mm. one in a million chance you'll get like an Instagram following or something like that. But you you can try to enter the society of the spectacle but all the profits of trauma a spectacle have already been taken
0: it's like everything else you know the 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 capital is concentrated in a few hands and uh you know you're going to have to wait for there to be some sort of crisis in the trauma industry before you can break in and 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 get the get the goods cheap um <clears throat> listen we've been talking for about an hour i really appreciate uh, what you're saying and, and and having the opportunity to talk to you. I'd love to have you back on sometime. The thing that that gets me in this moment is it, it feels as though uh, with this crisis and you know the invasion of, of Ukraine, that it would be a moment where everyone, no matter what their political ideology, would be driven to try to think about the objective facts and try to understand what was really going on, consp- considering that, you know, uh, the prospect of a nuclear war starting in Europe is a pretty, you know, terrible it's one. Closer
1: than, it's closer than it ever has been before in our lifetimes.
0: So, yep. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. I mean, I wasn't around for the Cuban Missile Crisis, so the, this is the last time it's been like this. Is probably that's around right. that time. Um, and and yet, instead, uh, we're still, you know, looking at it as if it's like a, I don't know, a, a soap opera or, or some sort of Uh, drama and, and
1: uh... Western, Western, you know, good guys versus bad guys, or, you know, we're, we're going to have this like purgative violence. There's like the violence of the bad guys. I also write about this in in the book too, but the PMC is actually like says it's for peace, but it actually is for a um, higher form of violence. That's going to guarantee the peace. And that was all the way uh, through the cold war and everything else. And so I I feel like we're, we're being primed for that.
0: If you enjoy these videos, you should click on the subscribe button and click that bell. You should also consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to a second behind the scenes parrot room discussion where we dish out gossip or go into the weeds on topics such as the tendency of the rate of profit to decline, imperialism, and the critical theories of Tiffany Persett and Donald Most. You'll also get access to both the public and private version of the revised Pop the Left series with Ashley Frawley and Pascal Robert and the new Zoomer Philosophy series. Your support will not only make content like this possible, it will also help to establish a new publishing venture through Diet Soap Media. Right now, supporting me on Patreon will make a big difference.